Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Tiffany Hammond. Tiffany is an autism self-advocate, a mother to two boys on the spectrum, and the voice behind the blog, Fidgets and Fries. As a Black and autistic woman, Tiffany aims to educate others about autism and intersectional advocacy. In this conversation, Tiffany describes how she became aware of her differences, the guilt she felt after her first son was diagnosed, and how she finally accepted her own autism. Tiffany shares the journey of her advocacy work, how she feels about being an Instagram influencer, and why she felt conflicted about her sudden social media growth after the death of George Floyd. Other topics we discuss are the division within the autism community and the overlap between intersectionality and neurodiversity. In this episode, discover what's possible when your life is not defined by a single identity. To learn more about Tiffany, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. And now I present you Tiffany Hammond. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. I'm happy to be here. Can you please briefly introduce yourself? I'm Tiffany Hammond. I am the voice behind Fidgets and Fries. I'm an autistic self-advocate raising two autistic boys. And I use my writing to tell stories, to educate people on what autism is, how it looks. And I am an advocate for all people. And I just educate people on how to make sure their advocacy is intersectional and including everybody within the group and not just certain specific presentations of disability or autism. And um, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Great. So when did you first discover your own autism? I was 18 and I was a freshman in college and I was like three or four hours away from home. And that was when it kind of hit me more. Like I was always felt different growing up and just everything I think was magnified when I was no longer at home and I was no longer surrounded by all those things that I used to make myself feel safe. Like I created like a safe space in my, my room or I had a special place to go in the neighborhood and I didn't have that anymore. I was just kind of in a new place in a new city with a lot of strangers and a lot of different responsibilities and things that I had to do and learn and do on my own. And at that point I didn't have a 
diagnosis, you know, of autism. So I didn't have the supports at school that probably would have helped me. This was just kind of just there. And I lost a pin and it was like a really, really special pin to me. It was like one I had forever. And it had a troll topper. And you probably could have found that troll topper somewhere else, like online or somewhere, but it was, this was my troll topper. It was special and I loved it. And I lost it at school. And I had it in that most scary meltdown that I've ever had. And it made me miss class and a test. And I knew I had to take that test and I knew I could pass it. And I knew, and I just couldn't go because I didn't have that pen. And I needed a note for missing class and missing that test. And I learned from other students that it was easier to get in with psych services than it was to get in with the regular clinic on campus. So I just made an appointment and it was same day. And while I'm in there filling out everything and talking to the psychologist and stuff, and he just stops and he says, have you been looked at for Asperger's? And I was like, what is that? You know, and in the back of my head, I knew what he was saying because when I was diagnosed as depressed at age 16, that psychologist mentioned it as well. But it wasn't something that I was willing to explore further. It was just, I don't actually even know. I was still like kind of a kid then. And so a lot of it kind of went through your parents Mm -hmm. and things like that. So I don't actually know what all happened in that instance, in that situation and why I didn't really fully go any further with that. I just knew when I was 18, this guy was telling me about something that I had heard a few years prior. And I just was like, no, I never heard of that. You know? And Mm -hmm. He's like, well, let's just go and here. And he gave me a stack of evaluations. It's like, okay, whatever gets me the note so I could turn it into the, to my professor. So I filled out those. He went through some of it with me. He, he went over probably a few of those evaluations. And then the rest, he said, he'll get back with me later. So he gave me my note, turned it in. I want to say like a week later, he called me. We went over everything. He said, I'm going to give you this formal diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. And I was like, great. So now my anxiety has a weird name. So like, that's what I was thinking. It was just like a weird type of anxiety. And I was like, this is typical of my life. Like, (laughs) this is just okay, I can't even be regular anxious. I have to have a special name for it. And so he's explaining it to me and it's like going in one ear and it's kind of going out the other. And I'm just like, okay, whatever. So I took the diagnosis. I told only my grandma. I did not tell my mom. I did not tell my sister. I did not tell anyone. Why not? I, I don't, at the time, I don't know. It just, I felt like, and it's not like I'm not close with my mom and I'm not close with my sister. I'm like, we're incredibly close. I think I just felt like my grandma would understand more 
because she was more understanding when I was going through those like periods of my life that people didn't fully understand me or they they called me quirky or weird or lonely a loner it's just all of those things that people would just like kind of hurl at me she understood and she made me feel better about it and it was just kind of like easier to talk to her about those things I think it was just because she didn't live with us so it's kind of like I can you know offload on her just give her like just everything and then it could sit with her at her house I can unpack it with her and she's Mm -hmm. not at my home and then instead of unpacking it with my mom or like my sister and then they have it in their head and it's just there and then then I didn't know if they were gonna like constantly remind me of this or they were gonna treat me differently because of it or what it was just easier just I'll tell her I needed to tell someone I didn't want to tell everyone but I needed to, to, to get it out of me and so I told her and she just said, hmm, that makes sense. And then that was it. She just moved on. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty easy. And so, like, I felt like maybe I could tell someone else. But it took me a long time to find somebody else that I could tell. And I told my husband. Well, at the time, he was my friend. <laughs> but I told him. But I think I had a different reason for telling him. I think I was just kind of, like, trying to push him away. Because I wasn't really good with talking with people or interacting with people. And then here's this guy who's like, actually seems like he wants to know me. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what that, that feeling meant. Like, with that all involved, it just felt taxing. It just felt like I got to use all of this words, so like all of these to, to talk to this person. And he always wants to know more, like, <laughs> and more. Like, and it's just right. like, Oh. How did he respond when you told him that? He responded just like my grandma did. It was just like I told him and he was just like, oh, okay, well, you want to go to McDonald's? <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay. So then there was another person. There was the second person that was like easy to tell. And I felt like, wow, I can tell people this. But as I was like gearing up to tell other people, that's when I started to realize that the world wasn't as kind or accommodating as my grandma and my and my now husband was. It was a lot. I would see the people make fun of the other people for just thinking they had a diagnosis like in class mm. and they didn't they wouldn't even know they would just assume that or the the horrible interactions that I had with my my roommate because she saw firsthand the meltdowns or me like talking to myself or like me like fidgeting with different things or kind of like rocking or or just kind of like she would see that so then she would tell people and then that kind of like spread and I stayed in a small house like so it was like 30 girls 30 freshman girls in a small house and we shared everything we shared the laundry we shared the little kitchenette we shared the great room or the everybody knew everybody and everybody knew this person's business and this and so it was just a 
situation where I was like, I don't want to bring any more attention to myself. I don't want to do that. So I didn't really explore what Asperger's was. At, well, it was Asperger's then, so autism. But I didn't explore what that diagnosis meant. Like, what does it actually mean? Like, why do I feel this way? Why do I have these sensory issues? Why do, at that point, I'm just still thinking it's just this weird anxiety that I'm having. It's just, that's all it is. All I got to do is just treat the anxiety and then I'll feel better, you know? And so I didn't really Mm -hmm. like go into what is this? What does it mean? You know, and how does it affect my life? I didn't do that. When did that change? Oh, I want to say when my oldest was probably nine. Okay. It took that long. (laughs) It took that long. And how many years after your diagnosis was that? Probably almost a decade or so. Wow. Okay. Was it like a, some kind of denial? Yes, it was denial. It was fear. I think I felt almost more comfortable before I had kids with telling people like I was building it up. I think I told like a couple of friends maybe before I had my oldest and he was diagnosed with autism at 17 months. Mm. And then that's when it went, I went into full sadness. I don't want to say denial because I, I felt like it was my fault. So I felt like it was just like, I did this because I didn't, one, I didn't fully accept my diagnosis. I didn't learn what it was about. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't do any of this. And two, I was mad at genetics. I was mad at me. I was mad at like who I was, like, you know, DNA. (laughs) And that sent me into like a deep, deep, dark space after he was diagnosed. It was just like, this was my fault. Mm. And then I didn't want to even fully confront the autism within me because this is what, you know, I did this to my son and I didn't want to deal, didn't want to learn about it. And I think I was in that space for probably, I want to say like, six months or so after he was diagnosed I was kind of just going through the motions I was just doing what every one of the caseworkers said just follow this protocol you know sign him up for these programs have him see these doctors have him and I was just kind of just still doing it going through motions and one day I was just sitting and I was just like staring and my grandma was just like what is wrong with you? Like, what is going on? And I was just telling, I just told her, I was just like, I did this and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to like do anything. And at this time I was having probably like a meltdown like once a week. I was burnt out. I was worn out and I wasn't even attributing any of those feelings and those experiences. I wasn't even thinking that it was autism related. I was just thinking I was just like this horrible person, this horrible mom, this horrible being. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't sit for long periods of time in my child's therapy sessions. I couldn't understand why the lights in there was like annoying. I couldn't understand why I could hear them. I didn't understand. I thought it was just 
me not wanting to be there and with my son and see him go through those things that I gave him. That's what I was looking at it as. And she told me I just needed to, to one, I needed to come to grips with what I, what I have. I needed to, to, to get that together. I needed to understand that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, help me, please. And she's like, no, I cannot help you to understand who you are. She said, I can, I can assist you with looking up materials and I can be supportive of you while you go through it. But I can't tell you how to feel about you. And so I spent about a week or so kind of deep diving into autism, what it was, you know, and I gained an understanding and I thought in the end I was going to, it was going to be an understanding for me. Like I was going to get it and it was just going to, but I took it a totally different route. I went full in to my child instead. So it was like, Mm -hmm. okay, cool. I got it. That's natural though. Yeah. That's natural because you just want to take care of him and you want the best for him. Yeah. I thought I was going to go into it and it was going to understand it for me. I was going to, it was going to help me. And I get it. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it it did, but it just sent me into like this hyper state of like just helping my son and so that's what I did. It was just all Aiden, all the time, all everything. I was just in him, therapy, speech, OT. What is autism? What is it? You know, everything. All him, all the time. Still wasn't really fully dealing with me. You know? Yeah, I see. And I didn't really fully address my needs until Aiden turned nine or ten. And he's 13 now. Hmm. And it wasn't even really because of Aiden. It was because of my youngest, who was diagnosed at age six. We waited. I felt like he could have been diagnosed at two. I guess what I, I was seeing it. And even though he's verbal, like very, very verbal, I was seeing everything else. And in JoJo, that's my youngest, I see me so much and it's like looking in like a mirror you know and um you see those like shows or movies or something and then and the person is like living in like this like dream state or something and something just like bolts them awake or like something right yeah that's what it was when I would look at my youngest my youngest I'm like that's me in little boy form right it's mm-hmm. just like right there in my face and that's when i decided i needed to explore more about what autism was for me if i'm going to better able help my kids because once i started to realize that my youngest was like a little miniature version of me then i started to realize that some of the ways that i was helping him was some of the ways that I was helping myself when I was growing up, like trying to to cope with different things and mm-hmm. but not knowing what it was, not knowing that I was creating these little safe spaces and these little bubbles that I can exist in because of the environment was just too harsh for me. And I didn't realize why I was doing that, but I was doing it to try to like counteract that assault on my senses and I realized I was helping him 
And I was like, I got to explore more of me. And that's how I can help my kids. And that's when I started writing. I always wrote. Like, I always would write. My grandma showed me that. Because I think in pictures. And I don't have words running in there. And I don't have an inner monologue, which a lot of people don't really fully understand. Yeah, I'm not, like, thinking of, like, what's going to happen next and what's going to happen. I talk out loud. I talk myself through things. Mm-hmm. So when I think in pictures and I can't always get it out, show me to write, write, write. So that's when I started writing. I, wrote, I started writing on a young, young age. And that helps me process things so I can revisit it later and try to figure out what, 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 what was I thinking? What was going on? What was going on in, in this situation? And so I started to share. I started to journal what I was experiencing myself and what I was looking at within my children. And I would write it. And I had these journals, just full of journals. And then one day I was like, I don't know what made me decide to share one, but I did. And everyone was like, you should blog, you should write, you should share more. And I I did that on my Facebook. And so I would share a little bit more. And then so I would be like, more blog, you should do a blog. It's like, cool, whatever. I just dove into it. I didn't really know what I was doing. When I did it, it was like, I just started a blog and <laughs> I just shared on there. I was very unsuccessful in the beginning. <laughs> like it was just me just sharing a bunch of stuff that didn't really make sense to, you know, and I wrote better when I was writing for myself and then I would just happen to share it. But then when it was like a blog, it was just like, Oh, the shares have to be more deliberate now and they have to be more. Now you have an audience. Yeah. Yeah. And so the writing suffered. I can admit that it was just bad. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. and while a lot of people were still saying it was good, it was just bad. I didn't like it. I didn't do well at it. And I was burning myself out trying to maintain this blog I wasn't happy with and I wasn't growing and there was a lot of things going on in our lives and I was being more of an advocate in real life I didn't think to write about that I was just doing it like it was always a new fight I was fighting with the schools I was fighting with insurance companies I was fighting with lawmakers we were in Austin like just sleeping in the capitol building on the floor just waiting to talk to someone you know, or going to a mock hearing or going. So I was doing all of that stuff on the outside of that blog. And I didn't think to like write about those experiences then. It was just trying to keep everything separate and just, you know, write. But as I grew and learned, just as I couldn't, I tried to parent. I tried to just be a parent and not an autistic parent for so long. And I couldn't do that. Because autism is such a part of me, it affects everything. It affects how I see the world and even how I see parenting. And I was trying to separate the two. And I learned through writing and launching that initial blog that I couldn't separate the advocacy from, it was seeping into my writing. Everything was touching everything. And I was like, I have to live completely whole and who I am. And so... I said I needed to shift. I needed to make a shift from talking primarily about being a parent 
because I'm not just a parent. And that's when I started to gain a little bit of like traction because I finally decided to give myself the permission to live whole mm-hmm. and completely me. Without like categorizing yourself into these different boxes. Right. Without the little boxes. I mean, in the autism community itself will pit you against yourself. And it's just like, this community is incredibly fractured. And I felt when I first started blogging, the only time that I would touch on those other identities that I claim was when I felt like I could definitely be the glue that glues everybody together because I'm like the mom and I'm like autistic and it can work Mm -hmm. you know and that couldn't be my responsibility that that's a lot of pressure it was just I couldn't do that Mm -hmm. I couldn't do that when I went and I shifted from being just parent just a parent blogger to embracing everything that was when I realized it wasn't really on me to heal this divide. I just want to create my own space, create my own community of sorts, you know, something that was reflective of everything that I am and a community that was worthy of my children. And that's what I wanted to work on. I wanted to be like autism parent you know autistic adults autistic parent woman black wife daughter sister whatever I wanted it all to be safe and welcome in this space I wanted to create what I didn't see and that is what I have been trying to work on full-time for the last year or so trying to get that out. (laughs) Yeah. And it's great. Your blog is called Fidgets and Fries. Yes. And so your audience is all of those different groups that you mentioned, people who can relate to you. So what inspires you to write now? Me, honestly. (laughs) I never, I think that's why when I was having the problems in in the first place, when I first started my blog, it's just like, I wasn't thinking that much of myself. I wasn't selfish enough. I needed to be, I needed like a little part of me that was just like, you need to do this for you and how you feel and how you operate and stuff. And that is what I go by. I always will say that the day that I am no longer saved by writing is the day that I will no longer do this. I will like shut down my blog. I will not advocate. I will not do any of this because writing is what holds me together it's what and so I have to write for myself and no one else I always write for an audience of one as me yeah do you write every day I write every day I write all the time I wrote a like three-page paper on our table our dining room table (laughs) what was it about I was trying to Make it come to life. Ah, interesting. Like I was trying to challenge myself. I'm like, I wanted it to be like this table and it's just sitting there and it has all these stories to tell, like from its humans that come and 
sit at it, mm-hmm. you know, and all the little, the nicks that it has, you know, from the little human children who hit on it, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, yeah, it is table just had all these stories and it had all this history and all this, these things going on with it. And it's, and the table has had so many different chairs because the chairs have broken. So it, you know, so it's <laughs> like, it gets introduced to all these new chairs you know, I write about everything. I write about life and taking things apart and examining their guts and writing about that and putting it back together. But I I write for me always. Mm-hmm. And if someone gains something from that or they, they see themselves in whatever it is that I share, that's so amazing. It, it makes me feel really good, you know, but it doesn't make my day. Like, I don't want the support and the praise and stuff to build me up so much that the moment I receive, like, any type of criticism, it breaks me. And that's what's happened before, is that I was writing for the support, and I was writing for the praise, and I was writing for the likes, and I was writing for the everyone else. I was trying to find what everybody else liked and put that out there. And I wasn't writing for me. And so when someone didn't like something that I put out that I felt like they would like because I was catering to them, that broke me. Mm. It like completely sent me into like this dark place. And so I always make sure that I write for me. I have to like and love what I put out there because it's, mine and I build myself up and I build myself up so big that if anybody doesn't like what I have to say I'm not broken by that this Mm -hmm. is just this is me this is me and my life and you could disagree with it but it won't matter that's a powerful place to stand yeah yeah it it took a long time to get there but (laughs) it took like so long to get there and and I probably would have got there sooner if I would have listened to the grandma, but you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tiffany, I want to talk about a blog post that you wrote about a month ago titled, Am I Good Enough? In which you talk about feeling conflicted with your growth in the social media world in just a few short months. So could you talk about why you were feeling that way? I didn't know if I deserved it. Like I was angry when I wrote it. It was like anger and it was kind of mixed with a little bit of sadness and a little some frustration. And I was angry at everyone and I was angry at myself because I was angry and I didn't know if I should be. And it was like me spending like three years or so. Like I didn't just start this. Like I spent three years screaming into like the wind, I guess, about the issues that hurt us as not only Black Americans or Black people or Black disabled people or Black autistic people, just all of those. And and no one was really hearing me and no one was seeing me and no one was understanding that pain and that we were, I was going through and they didn't get it. And I was spending 
all those hours in those hallways sleeping to talk to legislators to tell other people's stories. I wasn't there to tell mine. I wasn't there to tell my kids. I was there to fight for other people who did not care about me. What were you fighting about specifically? Oh, for starters, that Medicaid wait list is ridiculous. The waiver, that was the main thing I was down there for. Also, there was another waiver program, the MDCP, Medically Dependent Children's Program. I believe that's what it stood for. And my son used to be on it. And then they made cuts. And so many children got completely kicked off of it. And for my son to qualify in the first place for it, even though he definitely needed it, the nurse that came out had to almost jazz it up, had to make him even more disabled to get it. So those were the the main things we were down there for. And I'm down there with a collection of stories from other families whose children has been kicked off, whose or their services have been cut. And we're down there with a stack of stories and one is mine and like two dozen more are not. And we're speaking on their behalf. We're attending the mock hearings and we're learning all that we can. We and me, me and my husband. And I am sharing our experiences that are unique to us as Black disabled people and families. And is nothing and you hear nothing or when they do comment they're like um well I don't think it's a race thing I think that we just need to all stick together and it's gonna all work out they don't help disabled people in general and I'm just like okay and it was just that's the, the same thing you get the entire time and I was writing about that And nobody was really hearing it. Nobody was getting it, except for the few people that did follow me at that time. Then George Floyd happened, and he was murdered. And they went through that period on social media. They were like, well, we need to amplify Black voices and listen to us. And they blacked their squares and and things like that. And so they, they started sharing my stuff a lot more and so I think it, it reached somebody I don't know who it reached but it was somebody who had like a, a lot of followers and then they shared it and then so I started getting more and more people coming to my page and it just kind of like blew up from there and I didn't know how to handle that I wanted people to hear me mm-hmm. like I wanted them to, to understand what it is that I'm fighting for what it is that I stand for and want to help you know much in the same way that that I help them I want them to help me but I want them to want to be here for that reason and I couldn't tell if they were there because they saw something in my message that moved them or if they were there because favorite influencer told them to amplify black voices and go follow people and I I I did not know that and that's what that piece came from. Is It was because I was saying that from a very young age, like we're taught that we have to be twice as smart. 
twice as fast, twice as brilliant, work twice as hard at everything. You mean because you're black? Yes. Sorry. I left that out. Wow. That's okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't really fully understand it. I didn't understand why my grandma and my mom was teaching me these things at such a young age until I experienced it at such a young age. I was eight and I wrote a story about socks that came to life and it just caused all kinds of all kinds of trouble and the teacher didn't think I wrote it wow she basically accused me of not writing it (laughs) and I didn't understand it at the time you know I'm just like she said I didn't write it and I wrote it you know and it was just like a big thing You mean more than just that you were eight years old and that you could have been a good writer for being eight? Yes, more than that. Okay. It was just, I didn't get it at first at all until she would do other things throughout the year. (laughs) And then I got it. I started to kind of understand it a little bit, but still my eight-year-old brain is just like, you know, we're not getting it just yet. But, you know, as you get older, you learn it a little bit more. And I was saying that we work so hard to show that we're capable enough and that we're brilliant enough or smart enough. And then when we finally are recognized for something, we don't know if we deserve it. And so that's what made me frustrated with myself. I'm like, I know I'm more good writer or, you know, cause I feel that I feel it, you know, but here I am doubting like my ability to be a writer or to be an advocate. I didn't know. I was like doubting myself. I'm like this kid who grew up doing nothing but writing, grew up doing nothing but trying to make my own little world better for myself and not just myself, all of my little animals, you know, Mm -hmm. like I was advocating for little, little ants and animals and, and all kinds of little things. And I've been spending my life doing that. And then I doubted whether it was real or that I was good enough. Mm -hmm. And that angered me. It angered me because I felt that way. It angered me because I live in a world that makes me feel that way. I was frustrated that it took the murder of George Floyd for people to see me. I was just angry and sad and frustrated. It was just like so many different like emotions that went through me and then I I just wrote that and I was just like I don't even know why y'all are here really and I and, and when I sent it when I when I shared it I was like well I, will I lose all the people that I just got by saying this but I have to write for me and I have to put that out there. that's what I was feeling at the time and then I put it out do you still feel that way or have you thought about it more and you've shifted now? I don't know. My feelings are still kind of complicated on it. I do feel better about it when 
these are those moments where I wish my grandma was here because all I have are her stories. And so I just kind of think back on her on something she told me one day when she said something else might have gotten someone in the door, but you made them stay. Mm-hmm. And so I was just thinking that. Exactly. And Tiffany, like the thing with Instagram, you know, people go to people's pages all the time, but not everyone follows. Yes. Not everyone becomes like a subscriber to your content. So your grandma's right. Like there's a reason that you have, what is it like over 15,000 followers now? Yeah. I try not to look at it (laughs) because I get more and more overwhelmed with it. But no, I've checked out your page and you have a lot of engagement. Like I'm not just trying to make you feel better, but I think this is important for people to understand too, that sometimes things may feel performative or whatever, but there oftentimes is like a genuine interest there too. Yeah. You know, I am in a way better place than I was when I wrote that. I was still trying to sort out Instagram first. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I I was learning the the whole thing. I was learning hashtags. I was learning all kinds of things at that time. And then I when I just kind of had this explosive like growth period, it just took me like by surprise and just like shock and just like, wow, like, I hope that the people here are here because they they see something and they relate to it and, and they want to help and they, they want to learn and they want to grow. And I couldn't find it in me to believe that just yet. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just because I feel like people, we're all like, the sum of our histories and our context and my history has shown that a lot of time a lot of it was performative and so like I come I enter into it with doubts and I enter into it with skepticism so that kind of it was a lot of that playing in there in the back of my head and then when I I thought back on you know my grandma's words and stuff that made me feel a lot better so I'm not in that same headspace that I was I love and adore the community that I have because they are like you said they are highly engaged they are engaging with each other and it's not just autistic adults it's also parents and they're engaging with each other Mm -hmm. and there's like very little conflict and I can talk about the hard stuff I can talk about racism and it not be received in the way that it was when I initially started talking about it. And so that is incredibly amazing to me. There's some things that, you know, like some of the people that did amplify my voice or share me or whatever, some of those people have been, or accounts have been incredibly silent since then. Like they haven't, you don't see it in their content. You don't see it in their shares. You don't see it in their posts. And that there is incredibly frustrating because mm. you know that their intentions weren't pure when they did it. 
but I'm trying to find the good in it because they sent a lot of people my way that are. So, (laughs) so I thank them for that. And I am very appreciative of all the people that are in my space that listen and they want to help and they do understand and they do get it. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. You're building a community. Yeah. And so what's it like to be an influencer? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I uh, It's weird and scary and overwhelming. That's why I don't check my follower count. Like, mm-hmm. like the last time I checked it, I, I, I had hit 10,000 and I was so happy because I got the swipe up button. Yep. Everyone wants that. <laughs> I saw that. I was like, okay, I guess y'all can swipe up now. Cause I, yeah. I have such a hard time with trying to figure out links and then putting it where, and then I forget. And then, so I'm like, oh my gosh, this makes it so much easier. And so I was happy about that, but I was still overwhelmed. And I ended up checking again. And when I hit 11,000, I I think I, I had a meltdown. I was so overwhelmed. I was so, it was like, that's a lot of eyes. Mm. That's a lot of people. That's like a lot. Like, I, I had to have, my husband had to talk me off, like a, talk me down, like bring me down. Cause it was just like so much. And I was like, I'm not checking the count anymore. So I have it. Okay. <laughs> I was not going to check it. And then I accidentally had to check it because I had to change my bio link. And so then I saw it again. I was like, oh my gosh. So like I'm trying to like practice like the breathing techniques they teach you in therapy and not get so overwhelmed by it. And then I get the messages. And then so I try to read every single message that I get. And then I try to respond to every single message that I get. And when I respond to them, the reactions that they have, and then that sends me into like even more overwhelmed because they're like, oh my gosh, you responded. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Like starstruck. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm just like, oh, you know, like, like paper bag reading. Like, it was like, like overwhelmed. And like, some will send like the video messages so they don't like, type and they're crying. Wow. That just shows the impact that you're having on them. That's amazing. That's what my husband said. And I'm like, I like it. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like I'm happy. And then I'm like overwhelmed at the same time. It's like hard to describe the feeling. Do you feel some pressure that you need to live up to some expectation? I do. I do sometimes. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes that people expect me to always be happy or like always positive about everything. And I'm not always happy or positive. I actually like that about your account though, because you keep it real and you talk about the struggles and that's actually what people can really relate to, like that vulnerability. Yeah. I had to add that in there because I went through a period where it was like happy. I went through like, oh, it was all happy. And I was like, gosh, I'm not this happy. I'm really not. I'm like, people are not this happy all the time. And I, I get into these states though, where I am happy so much and I'm so happy to the point where it hurts. And I think that's probably like probably a symptom of my diagnosis, but I want to keep it kind of like 
a balance. I don't want people to be in these dark spaces because of ableism or because of how disabled people are treated or because of racism or because, because I cannot live in those spaces for too long, you know, but I do want to show that there are a lot of challenges in our lives. There are a lot of struggles that we all face. And I want to be able to balance that well without having to overtake my message. You know, I don't want to, I go to some people's accounts and it's just like, I just want to cry <laughs> like the entire time. I want to cry. And I don't want to be like relatable in that way. I want to show happiness and positivity, but also, you know, we got a lot of work to do. There's a lot of things we need to fix. And so I try to do that. I, I hope that it comes off like that. I know to some parents, because I do get their messages, sometimes they feel like I'm too positive with autism. It's like you can never win, right? Like someone's always going to say something. Yeah. It's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Right. And what's, what's weird is like, I actually understand what they're saying. I, I get where they're coming from. And I think that also helps me though, because I think that being a parent and being autistic, it helps me a lot to kind of understand their perspectives. Most of the parents that do send me the messages that say that, they do still love and appreciate my content. You get those few that are a little bit, you know, really mm-hmm. angry about it. And they want to be where I'm at. They want that. And it's just they aren't quite there yet, you know, and they're just looking for like, some guidance or some help so I definitely understand those parents a lot and mm-hmm. those parents do need our help and they do understand their struggles a lot so I I love them too <laughs> yeah so Tiffany I want to go back to what you were saying about you know that intersectionality of the minority groups and you recently posted something on Instagram about not feeling completely comfortable in the autism community and the same for the neurodiversity movement because of these gaps in inclusion and diversity efforts. Yes. Could you elaborate on that? That was inspired by a lot of account, like late at night, because I don't sleep much. I will travel down the rabbit hole that is Instagram and I will read accounts and I will read comments and I will read because I I, I try to get inspiration or I just try to see what everybody's talking about, what's going on. And I see a lot of like inclusion and I see a lot of diversity posts and comments. And then I, I'm in my head, I'm like, we do not implement those very well. We do not. I think that a lot of people are satisfied with just putting diverse bodies into spaces where they weren't any. And then they think that's what it is. Or with schools and we're like well we're just gonna put more you know disabled children with non-disabled children and then that's it and we're good and I think that we don't go far enough and I am exploring that post in so much greater detail and I'm gonna share that later sometime but what I was getting at was that I don't feel comfortable within the autism community as a whole 
you know, if I did, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of division. There's a hierarchy here, whether people want to admit it or not. And that's with all other disabled movements as well. They're all centered in whiteness and they all do not consider the needs of their black and indigenous populations. And so that was me saying, I don't feel fully comfortable within the autism community. I also don't feel fully comfortable within the neurodiversity community either for the same reasons. And when I wrote that, I was like, we got to figure out a way because at their core, intersectionality and neurodiversity want the same thing. And they examine the same types of things. And so what would it be like if they work together instead of being two parallel concepts. And so I was thinking, I was like, how would they work? How would neurodiversity as a paradigm work with intersectionality as a theoretical concept? And so that's what I was exploring when I was writing that. I was like, how would that look? And I was like, I think we would have a better understanding of diversity and inclusion if we worked those two together, what are their strengths in each? What are their core principles? Would they work well together? Could they work well together? And that's what I was doing. I was writing it out. And I think I was trying to like find the answer myself as I was writing. I wanted to know like, how would they work together? Because I feel like they both want the same things. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of this can sound really abstract, Sometimes. So what are some of your examples specifically? Like maybe could you put it in a real life example so that people can better understand? So intersectionality, it looks at our systems of privilege and oppression. So it's looking at not just all the ways that we are put at a disadvantage. It's also looking at the ways that we are privileged. It's looking at where power comes in and where power leaves. It's a power-based concept. What intersectionality will do is it will take a person or a community and it will look at where their where their power comes in and where their power depletes or where they have no power at all. And they are looking to find different ways that they can support that person or that community based on where their power fluctuates. Neurodiversity does similar, but in a kind of like a little bit of a different way. So what they are looking at is they're looking at how our brains operate and how it works within a society who mostly disables us because of how our minds work or because of how our bodies work. They're looking at also where we are strong at and where society would view us as weak at and looking at all the ways that they can address those needs and help those with different minds live successfully in this world. And so when you have these two intersectionality and neurodiversity, both looking at different 
power structures, different privileges, different oppressions. And you have these two incredibly, what I feel are powerful concepts or powerful things. And they're operating in different lanes. I was just like, what if we put them together? Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, as a black autistic woman, that I'm disadvantaged in a lot of different ways. And intersectionality recognizes this. It shows where my power lies and it'll show me where it doesn't. What can be done to fix that? You're looking at a black child who's autistic who will be diagnosed at a later age than a white child with autism. Excuse me, if they're diagnosed at all. But sometimes they're misdiagnosed. Sometimes they're not diagnosed at all. And sometimes they're given diagnoses of ODD. Yeah. Or just simply ADHD. If even that, <laughs> you know, a lot of times we don't even get one. Or they're diagnosed far later. So they're missing out on a lot of vital early intervention programs. They're missing out on a lot of services. Schools will suspend Black children at higher rates, expel them at higher rates. So then they're also missing out on services and supports there. So intersectionality will look at what is happening here, and they'll attempt to address that. Neurodiversity also does a similar thing. They're looking at their minds. They're looking at how their minds operate. Why is it that this mind is treated so differently than every other one. Mm -hmm. What is it that can be done to address that? And so when looking at both of them and dissecting both of their parts, right? Because I like to take things apart. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So looking at them both separately and you're looking at these and you're just like, they're kind of wanting similar things. They're kind of wanting the same types of things. They're looking at the same types of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So why not try to figure out how well they could intersect? And a lot of times people don't really look at intersectionality from a disabled perspective. See, a lot of times disabled people are left out of like, a lot of conversations, majority of conversations, really. But then you have the neurodiversity movement and they're not always looking at race. They're usually just looking at neurotype. They're usually just approaching the issue as a state of how our minds are operating. They're just usually approaching it from me just being autistic. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for solutions on how to help me as an autistic person. And then you typically neglect that I have these issues coming into me as being a Black person as well. So we need to introduce both because a lot of times neurodiversity isn't isn't intersectional that much, especially when it cross sections with race or gender or sexuality. It's a large focus on a neurotype, how our brains are and how we are disadvantaged in a society that leverages normal brains, quote unquote. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you're bringing up a lot of great points and you're creating that space, like you're saying, through your blog, 
Yes. You're inviting the different angles to shed some light on areas that maybe weren't. That's what I, I am trying to, to do. I mean, even if you were to ask someone who's not in the disabled community at all, but they've heard of neurodiversity, and you're like, what do y'all guys think neurodiversity is? Most of the people that I've asked, they automatically assume it's an autistic movement. Mm-hmm. They don't even consider the other neurotypes out there. Yeah. And so it's looked at as a wholly largely autistic thing. And they're missing all of the other neurodevelopmental diagnoses out there. You know, they're missing ADHD. They're missing dyslexia. Mm-hmm. You know, they're missing those. They're missing those that have uh, like autism and ADHD together. Right. Or if they have uh, another type of learning disability together. And so at first I was like, oh, okay, well, they don't really know that much about the neurodiversity community because they're like outside of it. So maybe that's why they just assume it's an autism thing. But when you actually break it down and you're sitting there and you're looking at it, it does look largely autistic, right? It's like, it, it, that's what dominates this movement, you know? And it's like, we aren't really looking at other diagnoses that make our minds different, that make our minds different from the general population. And that also, like, we're kind of intersectional in our neurotype as well. Listen, everything's not you know, one kind of thing. So. Yeah. And it's important to give everyone a voice and a place to stand. Yeah. That's what I think. And that's why I was thinking they they can work. They can work together. As I was saying, I was like intersectionality or as it will look at me as a black person and a woman and it'll combine those two. And then it'll show a completely new experience that I have. Mm -hmm. So I'm, it's me being more than black. It's me being more than a woman. It's me being put together. And what experience, that's a completely new experience that I have. So if we were to find a way to put intersectionality together with neurodiversity, combine those, that would create an entirely different framework that we can operate under. And maybe that will give us some better ways to address the issue of inclusion or diversity. What does that really mean? Yeah. And like going back to your example about why Black autistic boys are less likely to get a diagnosis, you know, and kind of examining why autism has a stigma in the Black community. Oh, man. And looking at that. But it's these kinds of conversations that need to happen to bring more awareness and give families more information about what's out there and what they can be looking for when they start to see signs. That's exactly right. (laughs) And then in that way, like training more professionals in the Black community so that they can help people who might not otherwise have access to services. That's exactly right. Yep. Like even when you you bring up something good, like good, it's like one, a lot of what's missing from autism research is the ethnic and racial minority groups. They're not even really that much in the research. We also don't look too much at the influence of culture 
that has on not only how disability plays out in these communities, but how science also looks at us. They don't even look at like culture. When I was doing my master's program and we were reading case studies and looking at patients and trying to give them diagnoses of what we felt that they have, too few were given autism diagnoses to black and brown children. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, that's definitely what I feel these children have. Mm -hmm. And they weren't considering the cultural aspects of how these children's lives were, or even how they were presenting in the evaluations. There's not a lot of inclusion of black and brown and people in the research mm-hmm. and so the treatments and the the everything else we just we're not included and that has to change and also we do need more clinicians and professionals of color and then you also highlighted something that's incredibly important is that there's an incredible stigma within the black community for any type of diagnosis really I mean, it, it's bad. It's almost as if we're ghosts here. Like, we don't even exist sometimes. And that is horrible. <laughs> How does that play out for you in your life with your two sons? <laughs> it was really hard when they were first diagnosed. And we had a lot of family members, especially for my youngest, a lot of family members who did not even acknowledge my youngest's diagnosis at all because he could speak he talks to me that's what they say and but they don't realize that he went when he was in school he went to school from pre-k all the way to like third grade one teacher heard him talk and he said two words that was it he didn't talk at school at all but they're like well he talks to me like he they don't understand the entirety of his symptoms they don't understand his diagnosis so it was a lot of denial there it was a lot of anger it was a lot of like resentment on my part it's a lot of fallout it was a lot of hurt feelings it was just bad and they don't want to acknowledge the autism in my youngest and they would acknowledge it in my oldest because he's more obvious, I guess. Mm. But they were treated differently. And so that was a big issue as well. It's probably part of the reason why I only told my grandma mm-hmm. and my husband. Still sorting all of that out. And it's so weird, though, that I miss, I'm going to like sidetrack real quick, but it's so weird because I have this like a big online presence now and my sister is on my facebook she's on my instagram (laughs) she has not brought it up and i'm like wondering i'm like do you not know or do you know she hasn't brought up your autism you mean not yet not at all and because i haven't told her at all but it's so weird maybe she's just waiting for you to tell her like directly that's what i think i was like maybe she's waiting for me to like say it but she doesn't treat me any differently. She doesn't like say, you know, it's just. What's holding you back? I don't know. I t- tell my husband, I'm like, 
we're just gonna sit down one day and I'm just gonna gonna do it. (laughs) You know, I'm just gonna do it. That's so interesting that you can be so open to 15,000 people. Yeah. But not with my family. Not at all. I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know. I'm like, are like, well, it's coming. It's probably coming from this stigma that you grew up with also and what you were hearing. Yeah. It wasn't easy being a kid. It wasn't. And that's a, a lot of the reason why I treat my my boys the way I do and and why I share about them the way I do because it's not it was not easy to be a kid and then not know what it was about you that was different or why everything was weird for you like why like the experiences were just different and he didn't know why right have you explained autism to your sons yes to well it's a little challenging to do it with Aiden, but I still do it. I talk mm-hmm. to him just like I talk to, to Jojo and I talk to him like he's anybody else. Cause I feel like he understands me. So, but I keep doing it. It's so hard though, especially with my youngest. It's so, so different. I revisit it every once in a while. Sometimes he doesn't want to talk about it. He's just like, no, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And then other times he, he'll sit and he'll listen and he's just like, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay. And he'll have, he'll have his own story when he grows up and definitely, you know, looking back on and thinking, well, I always knew I had autism because my mom would always talk to me about it. Yeah. That's what I try. And I would, use different like stories and and I'm like you know you're just like me when I was like little and and stuff and he's like so (laughs) (laughs) like okay (laughs) you know and I went and got reevaluated I went for other for something else like because I just wanted to see you know what was going on like I felt depressed like I, but I was diagnosed with depression when I was 16, but I was like, let me go through this again because I don't have any medications or any therapy or whatever. Just let me just go and see if this is what is wrong with me. So I went and got reevaluated again earlier this year and stuff. So I got my depression and, you know, and I got dysmorphia or something like that. I forgot what it was, but it was something else. And got my autism again. So, <laughs> you know, so I'm showing him my paperwork because I actually have paperwork this time. Like I had my diagnosis for, I carried with me for so long. And then I finally lost it in a move like four or five years ago. But so I have this new paper and I'm like, so I'm my son, Jojo. I'm like, look, this is my diagnosis. This is what he says. And all he said was, hmm, all of that. Your packet's bigger than mine. <laughs> I was like, but mine, I said, this is background. There's background in here. And he's like, the background's only half a page, mommy. I was like, okay. okay. Smart boy. So he's getting a little bit more comfortable with it. And not fully. He still wants to be, you know, just Jojo and, and everything. And he's not a identity first person yet so he's not he would not like for you to say he's autistic 
Mm-hmm. He was like, for you to just call him by his name and you can say with autism or, you know, he has it. He's not there yet. That might change in the future. It might not. I don't know. I used to be a person first person whenever I did say it. So like everybody goes through their own. Mm-hmm. And there's no right or wrong. Yeah. It's just whatever you're comfortable with. It's what he likes. So every once in a while, I bring it up. But Yeah. Well, Tiffany, I do want to be mindful of the time because I feel like we could just keep chatting forever. <laughs> You're really fun to talk to. Thanks. And it's funny that earlier you were saying that you haven't done so many podcasts yet, although you've done a few now, but you like to write more because you think that you're a better writer, but I think you're a really great speaker. So thanks. I encourage you to keep using your voice to spread your message. <laughs> but I do want to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other autistic mothers? Ooh, um, definitely take time for yourself. Definitely like lean into those feelings that you have like don't push them aside i know that's like the first thing you want to do because you're like a mom you're a mother you want to always put your kids first you want to always put them above everything but doing so is in the long run hard for neurotypical moms but it's like even harder for us because if we do not allow ourselves to feel what we need to feel or take the time that we need to take to process everything or anything around us, we will burn out or we will melt down. We're no good to our children or anyone else. We're not even good to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I learned that the hard way a lot. But that's like that's probably like my biggest thing is to definitely just take care of you. And listen to your body. Know your triggers, know your environment, know your surroundings. I know for me, I can feel, generally feel when a burnout is coming. And I can generally feel when a mel- if a meltdown is, is, gonna, is on me. Not always, but a lot of the times. And then so I'll try to, you know, take a step back, try to figure out what's going on, figure out those, those feelings before it happens. So that's just probably my biggest advice. Yeah, well, that's great. That's really helpful, I think, for any mother that's out there. All right, Tiffany, how can people learn more about you? I am on Twitter, Fidges and Fries. I am on Facebook, Fidges and Fries, as well. I'm on Instagram, Fidges and Fries. There's a period between each word. And I also just finished my website. So it's fidgetsandfries.com. So I'm on there. And I have a Patreon, which is under my name, Tiffany Hammond, where I do all things advocacy all the time. So I can free up my Instagram space (laughs) on there. But yeah. Cool. And that's where you can find me. I'll put links to all of those in our show notes. Yay. <laughs> All right, Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you. Just sharing yourself. I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people to understand what it's like to discover your diagnosis and to also navigate 
the social media world and the neurodiversity oh. movement intersecting with intersectionality. So we covered a lot of topics here. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Tiffany brought up some important points about both the overlap and the gap between intersectionality and neurodiversity. When examining how a person fits into society or how society can adapt to that person, it's essential to recognize where power imbalances lie and how specific challenges may be unique to certain groups. As we've previously discussed on this podcast, the autism spectrum is complex and we need to look at each person separately instead of defaulting to stereotypes. However, on top of the varying characteristics of autism, a myriad of shared factors can have an effect on individual experiences. For example, an autistic gay man in the U.S. who was diagnosed later in life may face struggles different from those of an autistic heterosexual woman in China who received early intervention services. Similarly, other variables such as their socioeconomic status and ethnicity, as well as the level of understanding of autism in their communities, can affect the way their individual experiences are formed. Continuing to identify these differences and similarities will allow for more targeted solutions so that more people can have access to education, services, and a better quality of life across the board. In order to cultivate a community where all voices are heard, we need to start by paying attention to what they have to say. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.